Hello and welcome back to Link to the Cast, your weekly dose of video games and nerd culture ephemera available everywhere good podcasts are sold. I'm your party host, Dave Ryan, joined by the full compliment again this week. Two weeks back to back. This is weird. This is weird. Uh, first off, he's a handsome conduit. He's Mark Robinson. How are you, my friend? I have watched so much Batman this week that I'm fairly convinced I am Batman now. Yeah. I am Jim Carrey at the end of Batman Forever. I'm surprised knowing your usual maverick status that you didn't like go in like reverse order from somewhere in the middle of the franchise or something like that. You have gone from the, the Burton 89 forward. Yeah, yeah. I should have started with like Batman versus Superman, then gone to Returns, then gone to Suicide Squad and just kind of ricochet back and forth. Were you tempted to, and I've never watched it in full, I've only watched it in phases to go the movie version of the 60s Batman? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm very like unfamiliar with 60s Batman. Uh, I, you know, I uh, occasionally pop up on TV back in the day, but... Um, yeah, it was, yeah on, it, I, was, I, it was on... I don't know if it was... I feel like on Irish TV, Garrett, they showed 60s Batman, like, on the weekends in the morning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. It feels like a daytime TV Yeah, sort of yeah. Thing. I couldn't remember if it was English TV or Irish TV, but I feel like it was Irish TV that it was on. Like, I'm sure it was on over there as well, but, I, I, like, I definitely saw lots of it. I um, think we had it on Channel 4, I want to say. Yeah, even at that young age, it was very hard for me to connect the fact that Batman the Animated Series and 60s Batman reruns were the same character. <laughs> like, well, wait, you just fucking wait till I start talking about yeah. these uh, later on in the show. Damn right. Uh, joining us as well, a man who I think is probably still reeling from the celebrations where Chelsea scored two goals in a game this week. It's a Sidonis simp, it's Jack Lazell. I know. I, I almost passed out uh, in, in insane amusement at the, the idea that we might get as giddy heights as two goals in a game. But I, yeah, saw, I, I saw your text um, into our, our football group chat where like you were at around the full time in the Champions League game. You're like, lads! And I was like, oh, Jesus, Chelsea have put a fucking hiding on Dortmund here. Went in 2-0. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. That's all it needed to be, though. <laughs> yeah, it just needed to not be 1-0. Look, I'm a very simple man. I have very simple pleasures in life, you know. I just I just need the bare minimum. I'm not asking for anything extreme. Just just yeah. just a nice bit of something to cheer about, something for me to ha- to be happy about anyway. Yeah. That's all I want in life. Rounding us out, the nexus of humanity, the Rebel County's favourite son. It's Garrett Kidney. Garrett, how are you? If it makes you feel any better, Jack, I support a club that's owned by Saudis, but also defaults on transfer payments. So. <laughs> that's... <laughs> That's the ultimate, like, there's just, there's just no winners. <laughs> no, no you get all the moral stance you take, you've lost. You get all the moral, ethical problems if your club's being owned by Saudis, with none of the club is successful and has money part of it. <laughs> or even is in the Premier League. No. And ar- arguably your most well-known manager is Neil Warnock, noted Brexit advocate. <laughs> Love Colin Wanker. Can I just say, by the way, I forgot one thing we didn't mention uh, when me and Garrett, I think, yeah, we were in Cardiff, wasn't it? And there was like the uh, kind of an evening with Neil Warnock thing mm. they had plastered around Cardiff City is like their big event coming up uh, post Clash at the Castle. I'm very sad we missed out on that. I tried to give in to Mark to stay in Cardiff for like three extra days so we could go see Neil Warnock. <laughs> <laughs> Jack, do, do you feel envious that like Mark periodically brings up that two hosts from this show holiday with each other frequently? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I don't love it, to be honest no, with I've you. I've shared a bed with Jack, all right? Hello. That is true. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. Here he is. 
And I shared a house with you, Dave. So, you know, we've, we've all <laughs> you got shared a sitting room floor with me. <laughs> <laughs> what um, what it sounds Garrett like just making up for lost time is yeah. that we should all go stay in Garrett's house and be really close to him at all times just to make up for it. <laughs> Garrett's the one person who no one on the show has freeloaded with. Yes. So, yes. <laughs> form a triangle around me at all times. Yeah. I'll tell one. you what. We'll all, t- we'll all do it in shifts. I, to be fair, like, like for, for some of your nuclear takes, my friend, a security detail isn't the worst idea. <laughs> You're my Goldberg's of pure security. Yeah, yeah. I will we, be we your bullet do, sponge. We could do that. If we ever go to like a WrestleMania or something like that, we will be your security detail. Just flank me. What have we been watching this week, gentlemen? There's one thing I think we all have in common here. So let's go to the outlier, who is uh, Mark, who has been going through uh, the Bats filmography. What, what, what do we call this uh, cinematic universe of these four first Batman films? Because, first of all, the first thing I have to say, having, A, now watched the, the 89 Batman for the first time, as mentioned last week, and having now watched these first four in sequential order in a short space of time, this is the first time that I've realised that these four films are actually in canon, and this is meant to be the same Bruce Wayne which I never clocked on to to this point. The fact that like these four films came out within the, the scope of a decade like is wild. And the <laughs> thing is, right, watching these four films, it's kind of like listening to the first four Radiohead albums in order because there is a, a tonal whiplash that happens. They, they don't seem like they came out from... Uh, like, they obviously didn't come out from the same director, but it's not just that. It's like they came out of parallel universes. I can't imagine that the version of Earth that produced the Tim Byrne Batman movies is the same version of Earth that produced the Joel Schumacher ones. Honestly, it's not even that. If you watch the two Tim Burton films side by side, you get that same sensation as you do watching the two Joel Schumacher films because it, it really feels like you know, you get the first film they do where they're kind of like, all right, I kind of have a grasp of what I'm doing here. And then it's like, it's an all out assault, push everything to 11. For, for Returns and and um, Batman and Robin, and we'll get to that. So I started with Batman. I was talking about it last week. I was about halfway through. I finished it. I know this is going to annoy you because it annoyed you last week. I don't really like the original Batman. I don't think it's a particularly strong film. I think that a number of issues. A, no one from the director to the people filming it to the actors themselves, no one really has a grasp of what this film is meant to be or yeah. how anyone should be played. I think, I think my gripe last week when you were fucking burning bridges left, right and centre wasn't that you didn't think the movie was good. It was that you went further and said that you thought Jack Nicholson was bad in us. Um, I still don't think he's particularly great in it. Oh. And and again, <laughs> this, see, that's the noise I made. And again, this comes down to the fact that no one has a grasp on how they should play their character because with Except Nicholson, Jack Nicholson. <laughs> no, no, there are moments where Nicholson, you like that menacing psychotic Joker comes through, but there are moments where it feels like bad cosplay doing amateur theatre hour with him. But that's and I don't know whether it's what the Joker the, is the Joker, yeah. And, and that's maybe say. that's maybe you you acknowledge it in the intro bit that like you don't have sixties Batman like so golden and silver age Joker is like vaudeville, you know. I so think that's- it's more a case that my Joker, the one that I resonate the most with, because it's the first interpretation I saw was the Heath Ledger one. I mm. think it's more to do with mm. that. There, um, there, there definitely is. I think, like, I think it's a, I think if that film came out this year with that performance, I don't think it would work. 
You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's it's an off the time thing as much as anything else, and it is like it marries the like the golden and silver age interpretation of the Joker with kind of like you know late eighties. You're starting to get that darker, you know, yeah. more sinister Joker that you're seeing in flashes. But it, uh, I would say, at the like in eighty nine, that's probably a fair enough representation <laughs> of the Joker. I uh, that that the the aspects you talk about in terms of like the silver gold age, the sixties. I don't see that. I just see someone who doesn't know exactly what he should be doing with it. But, you know, maybe it's just me. The other issue with the film, and I was talking about this last week, where visually at times it looks incredible for a film from, from 89. Like some of the matte paintings look just amazing. But a lot of the miniature shots, it looks like Thunderbirds. Um, you know, there's, there's a way to do miniature shots where it, you, you don't see the scale drastically shift and you see like toy figurines being used for you know a ship or whatever but this 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 batman film are some of the worst is not the right term to use but it's so clearly obvious that you've gone from uh, a car being driven down the street to you know the car flipping over next to a church and it is a miniature set uh, it's it's too painfully obvious um so that ages the film quite badly and I love Prince, but I don't understand the soundtrack. At oh, all. no, 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 no. I'm not a fan. I like the music and I like, I love Prince, but Batman, Tim Burton's Batman and Prince. Yes. They they hit like like a brick wall. I, I don't understand it. It's a brick wall made of solid awesomeness. <laughs> I like the way that you've gone with that one and not Joel Schumacher's Batman and Seal. <laughs> Look, hey, 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 hey! Or Joel Schumacher's Batman and the Smashing Pumpkins. Don't, don't you start on Kiss from a Rose, right? And fucking pumpkins. Don't you start with that. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Don't you start bad dance. That's a anyway. tune. Anyway, he made a whole sorry. record. If you no, listen to the Batman album, it's a tune, but it just doesn't. It's so fucking jarring against that film. Uh, the only thing that'd be more jarring is if he'd done that for Batman Returns, which he doesn't. And um. Yeah, so Batman Returns, I hadn't seen in fucking years, and I remember kind of aspects of it, but there were certain things that I didn't remember. And this is where certain things clocked on for me, and certainly when I got to uh, Batman Forever, that I was really like, oh yeah, these films are all actually like connected. They are kind of in canon. Um, you know, the fact that Michael Gow play, plays Alfred for all, uh, all four of them, that was the big thing, because when I was watching the original Batman and he shows up as Alfred, I was like, oh... Oh, this actually is the same like Batman for these four uh, films. Yeah, like I mean, they don't care. That's the yeah, thing. They that's don't the, care. It's not an attempt <laughs> no, they to build they, the universe. Like it's I just no, no. I know, I know, I know that. I know yeah. that. It's obviously it's a very loose like this is in canon, and it's very much a look. We just fucking we need a director, I, I, and we need I don't something even, like Batman, I don't even think whatever. there's fucking canon between individual Joel Schumacher or uh, Tim Burton movies. Yeah, like, it's, well, it's the same with like the Bond thing where like Judy Dench goes between Bonds. It's like yeah. where it, it, it's kind of canon, but it's not. They, they you, just don't yeah. really care. You are being very kind, Mark, to ascribe more thought than they, any of them put into these. I, but I, I like, I prefer it that way. I prefer it that yeah. they're just like, we just made a yeah. movie. Yeah. And yeah, they're yeah, kind of yeah. connected, but we just made a movie. And you get the occasional line where like they'll mention Vicky Vell in Batman Returns, yeah. I think, or they'll mention a Batman Forever about him 
yeah, having a previous girlfriend with a whip or whatever. Like those little Easter eggs, I, I quite enjoyed. And that's what I kind of like um, about the the kind of the the James Gunn idea for what he's going to do with DC is that like, yeah, like people seem to want to and like the you know the box office receipts show that like even with those bad movies, people still wanted to see some universe building going on there. But you know what? When we have a really good idea and we don't want to like shoehorn it into canon, we're just gonna fucking do it anyway. Like the Batman is going to exist completely separate. There will be another Batman in our continuity, but we're still doing the Batman because the Batman is fucking rad. Um, yeah. So yeah, I I like that that you can, you're not you don't feel beholden to canon because like we're looking over you know look over the fans at Marvel who are collapsing under the weight of their own canon now. Yeah. So Batman Returns. Um, one Danny thing DeVito, I forgot. One thing I forgot about this film. Right. So first of all, I think it's I think it's actually the best of the four Batmans. I'm just going to drop this right away. Brand that's that's the, the correct take. But yes, I, I think that is the I think that is the modern consensus of those four. But there's one very simple reason why the villains have the strongest grasp of, in terms of like the actual actresses playing those characters have the strongest grasp of what those characters are meant to be. Now, there is the fact that the characters and the origins of these stories are completely fucking unhinged, and it's the most Tim Burton... It's, like, the original Batman is a Batman film directed by Tim Burton, and Batman Returns is a Tim Burton film that just happens to have Batman in it. I I also think there's an extent to which, like, it, it kind of... Almost looking back at it the way we are now it is benefit from the fact that like that movie was influential enough that it sort of set the tone for a lot of those characters going forward. So it may not necessarily have been where that character was at in other media prior to the second Tim Burton Batman movie, but because everybody has copied that vibe since you're just like, Oh yeah, no, that completely fits. Whereas like, I think maybe, and, and much as I am loath to give modern Tim Burton a lot of credit because a lot of his, tropes annoy the shite out of me I, I do think like he he did a, a really fucking good job on that second one in particular yeah him, I mean, and, him and Tim Burton like defined the tone of modern Batman it's like what does modern yeah. Batman look and feel like at all times him and Danny Elfman yeah. just you can't get away from their vision of it these days yeah yeah but but with that said, Batman Returns is still a, an excessive amount of Tim Burton you know like you do have to switch your brain off for certain aspects of it the the clown performance villain the bad guys um the the fact that there is a bit where uh, Danny DeVito is giving a pep rally to a auditorium of penguins with rockets strapped to their backs yeah <laughs> film is so very, weird yeah. it's, it's totally very, yeah. legitimate it's very Com- Dr. Evil <laughs> completely fact, believable scenario the, the fact that penguin you know, has like the first kind of 30 minutes of the film where, you know, he's he's a specific type of character and he is kind of creepy and what, well, he's, yeah, he's creepy throughout. But there's basically, there's a moment where the switch turns and he does actually become Frank Reynolds and he just wants to fuck everything. <laughs> and you're not ready for that layup to happen because nothing up until that moment, you're like, what? And then there's just the whole scene with him and Catwoman where his first line is something like, oh, I've been waiting for like, I, I've been looking for the, this pussy or something. And it's just like, what the fuck is going on here? Turns um, into Sean Connery and James Bond. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Michelle, Michelle Pfeiffer is is probably like the best. In, in, throughout all of like these four Batman films, I think Michelle Pfeiffer is just... Probably was my first crush as, as a four or five year old, but like she just fucking <laughs> yeah, nails Mark, that character. I just, I just oh. gotta say on behalf of the listeners, cut the chuffa. 
Joel Schumacher Batman films. All right. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. thing, right? That's all, as soon as people heard you watched all four of them, that's what people wanted to hear. Okay, but here's the most the thing, right? sensitive so, of the Batman movies. <laughs> Batman Forever is probably the one I have the least amount to say because it rules. It's the one. It's the first one that I... Well, no, it's probably not the first... I think I did watch Returns first, but it's the one that I was about seven years old. It's the one I'd seen the most. It's the hardest one for people our age to be, like, you know, neutral on. Yeah, yeah. No, so here's here's the first thing that's going to annoy all of you. Um, I didn't realise the Danny Elfman theme was used in those first two Batman films. I always associated <laughs> that with the animated series. My Batman theme <laughs> is the uh, the Elliot Goldenthal one. That's the one that I register with, uh, which... You know, like sacrilegious, I imagine, but that's just the way I it is. I thought you were going to be like the Hans Zimmer, just like, bah. Yeah, that's my Batman <laughs> theme. No, no, the fucking da 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 da. That's that's my one. Um, Could you do the whole soundtrack like that? No, I will not. <laughs> Batman Forever. Mark sings the hits. <laughs> Batman Forever. Your tolerance to this film purely comes down to how much Jim Carrey you can tolerate, yeah. because this is 1995 Jim Carrey, and the man is full on fucking Jim Carrey. Did- <sighs> and again, it comes back to like, you know. Danny DeVito and Michelle Pfeiffer. They are playing Penguin. They are playing Catwoman as like. Uh, Tim Burton wants them to be done. Yeah. The Riddler, it's just fucking Jim Carrey, and it's like, let's just see what the fuck happens. And again, it's it's full on Jim Carrey. It's the mid nineties. Um, I, as a child, I you know I had watched The Mask. I had watched Ace Ventura, Dumb and Dumber. Like I love Jim Carrey as a child. I still have an appreciation for his style, but it is very grating, very jarring to watch. Um, and it also doesn't help that Tommy Lee Jones is two-faced. This, this is what I was going to say is like my favorite thing about it is that there's some scenes with the two of them where like you could tell Tommy Lee Jones for about three seconds flirts with the idea of trying to match his energy. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and also I wish I could want anything in life as much as Nicole Kidman's character wants to fuck Batman in this film yeah. because she has one character. She has w- one like... Uh, character device or plot device yeah. throughout this film and it's I want to fuck Batman and I, I, in fairness would it, you not want to fuck Batman yeah I would yeah if it was on the table for you to fuck Val Kilmer Mid-90s Batman which Val is about Kilmer, the only good thing enough. about yeah. that movie yeah. is Val Kilmer <laughs> just looking at Val Kilmer never mind his performance Val Kilmer is by far the Batman I feel the worst for Mm. Yeah, I mean, like that—that that was the shot. Like G- George Clooney, uh, you will. F- I'm very pushed to ever feel sympathy for George Clooney. He's done just fine. Yeah, <laughs> you know. But there is an appreciation to be had for Batman Forever because it is where you really start to like Schumacher does draw more into the kind of like, okay, why is Bruce Wayne Batman? Why, you know, what is the psyche behind this? Where they they kind of flirt around with it with Batman and Batman Returns, but it it's there's more kind of given to that for this one, which is something I guess I'd kind of glossed over as a child and not not paid as much attention to. So I do appreciate that they do that, and yeah, Batman Forever is like the the safest of the four of the films. I guess I feel I do feel like it's the one that, that there's the least amount to say, um, which I think is why I think Returns is better in hindsight because it's a little bit more edgy and daring with what it does. I do love that, like. Um the kind of balance that, uh, like, forever he's doing the, like, I'm taking the, like, the gothic nature of Gotham City and I'm making it, it, making it into, like, a real-life cartoon. I feel no, like... No, that, that, that's Batman and Robin. Yeah, but, but this <laughs> is what I mean. I feel like the balance between the two 
was much better in Forever. Like it goes way oh, too yeah. far into cartoon then. Like yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I think visually Forever is an actually like an interesting movie in that way. Is like you're he he's going for something. I don't think it fucking I don't think he knocks it out of the park by any stretch. It's like you're trying to put your spin on this world, and I appreciate that you're trying. Um, I do like it, that about all these movies, in that like Gotham looks like Gotham, yeah, as opposed yeah. to like the the Gotham looks like Chicago. They're all Chicago. They're just yeah. and, and the Batman. It's just New York. Like and that, that's the, the thing as well. Like with Batman and Batman Returns, even though it's the same director, it does feel too like two wildly different interpretations of Gotham City. Hey, a lot mm. can happen in a few years. Yeah, apparently so. Yeah. Batman and Robin, what a fascinating, Brilliant insane movie. mess of a film. Tremendous movie. So my first thing, my first thing is this, because uh, I, you know, I was looking at reviews on Letterboxd. Anyone who says that, oh, if you don't enjoy this film, you just, you're devoid of farm blood. Yeah, no, heartless, soulless monster. You can watch this film and come away and say, that was pretty bad. I didn't really enjoy that. That is a fair critique to have of this film. Yeah. Heartless, soulless if, monster. You, uh, you can also have both. Like I have, a tre- I have a tremendous time every time I watch it. It's one of the worst movies ever committed. I like the movie. Exactly. It sucks. Yeah. No, the movie is great. Heartless, soulless monsters. It's the truest spiritual extension of 60s Batman on like the big is. screen with ridiculous it, budget. And it's, it's so much fun. It absolutely is. Garrett, the spiritual extensions of the nipples on the costume. Uh, yeah, yeah, hell yeah. Listen, we're talking about first crushes. Chris O'Donnell in Batman and Robin. Yeah. Like that was a moment for many gay men. <laughs> I, I have a question. I have a question. I mean, there's Where something did... for everyone in that because Alicia Silverstone is also yeah. in that movie. She's yeah. she is horrendous in that movie. By the way, we'll get to her. We yeah. will fucking get to her. First of all, where did Chris O'Donnell's charisma go from Batman Forever to Batman and Robin? Because all out just... through the nipples into being hotter. That's that's, <laughs> yeah, what, that's yeah, what all right. Happened. Okay, okay, all right, fine. The sure. hotter you get, the less you have to try. Schumacher's notes: Shut up and get shredded. Son. <laughs> yeah. Every single aspect. You want, you want us to hear Robin talk? Fuck off. <laughs> Every single aspect of Alicia Silverstone's character, her story arc, her performance, her... She's from England, apparently, but you wouldn't know it from the accent. Yeah. Nothing about it works. It's botched. How she's just... You know, I know you have to kind of switch your brain off sometimes when it comes to comic book films, but the idea that she just puts in this disc, sees, you know, a bunch of cars flying on the screen and goes, I guess I'm Batgirl now. It's dreadful, and her performance... And, and in oh, terms man. of charisma as well, an entirely different human being to Clueless, which was, like, what, mm-hmm. two yeah, years exactly. before this? But you would say, like, the reason she's in this movie is because some, like, cigar chomp in Hollywood execs like, ah, you gotta get the girl from Clueless, you see? She's yeah. she's class, she is. Well, it's and- not even just that. There's clearly, like, uh, between the fact that this film is just one joint toy, uh, toy commercial, there is, you can tell by the end of this film, there's, like, a... They're going to do a fifth one of these. Like there, there is clearly a plan here oh, to yeah. do a fifth fucking oh, no, there was. film. There of was, this. yeah. I cannot comprehend what this Batman and Robin film looks like if they had originally got on like a Patrick Stewart or an Ed Harris as they yeah. were, you know, kind of thinking about. Because here's the thing: like the, the Mister Freeze character and like you know the the Mister Freeze character in this film, it's there is clearly Ernie. It, but it's just Arnie. That's just the delivering thing. ice it's, puns the entire time. It's like, like it's Jim Carrey as Riddler. You have the same thing. It's like it's not Mister Freeze. It's just Arnie, and he's dressed and he's blue. In in the history of cinema, there may not be like a greater disparity between two contemporary portrayals of the same character than Arnold Schwarzenegger and. Uh, 
Mr. Freeze in Heart of Ice in in the animated series. Like, it is fucking, it is different sports. It's not even, like, different leagues. It's different sports. It's incredible. Hey, Mark, what killed the dinosaurs? (laughs) The Ice Age. That's the one that drives everybody crazy, because, like, that's not even a pun. (laughs) The the worse they are, the better they are, Dave. Come on. No, like, and the other thing I I think that gets, like, missed in the, the Batman and Robin thing, Mark, is Uma Thurman. Oh, I mean, the thing is that she is pure on 60s Batman. Yeah. That is what she is in this. Um, and, and then you've got Bane, who's just a lug, Bane. just a big, dumb lug in this movie. Yeah. The best um, movie. Lose never thing is, right, the cartoon sound effects when he fights. But, but can I say, can I say, because, because I didn't watch, uh, read the comics and I, you know, I didn't have any kind of like understanding of Batman lore and whatnot. Up until The Dark Knight Rises, I just thought that is what Bane was. Actually, no, they, 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 showed Mike more of what he was in the the Arkham Asylum games. Yeah. But that, for me, Bane was just that. That was what I knew Bane was for like 10 odd years Amazing. or so. So it was the pinnacle of Bane for 10 years until you were, had Evidently, ruined for you. Yes. Yeah. Um, and the thing that I also glossed over Batman and Robin, and this is the, I feel like the biggest kind of surprise or take that I might have here, is that the stuff they do with uh, Bruce Wayne and Alfred when, you know, Alfred is... is starting to die and whatnot and they there's one particular scene where they're kind of talking to each other and, and alfred's in bed and he's very sick and you know george clooney he probably wasn't anywhere close to the the best bruce wayne but he's such a good actor that in that scene there i was like you know what i'm actually invested in this i'm yeah. caught up in this there's a genuine kind of point of, of emotion here mm. the problem is is that is sandwiched in between 60 minutes either side of Batman and Robin. Sensational brilliance. It seemed like such an open goal because like much like in the Batfleck thing, it's like, well, his essential, his essential lifestyle is Bruce Wayne. Like you couldn't get somebody in real life more close to Bruce Wayne to act in your movie than George Clooney at that, that time in the late nineties. Very accurate. As much as yeah. Tony Stark is uh, Robert Downey Jr., George yeah. Clooney was Bruce fucking and, Wayne. And, and the same with like Batfleck when he got hired. You're like, oh yeah, okay, he's he's been living the gimmick for for quite a while. So uh, yeah, at the end of this, it's just just a fascinating like ride over these four films and. I always, for the longest time, Batman Forever was my Batman. It was the one that I had on VHS and I'd watched on infinite repeat. But I do come away thinking that Returns is the strongest of those four. Mm. Um, There's many pros and many, many cons. They're all fascinatingly flawed films, but all for very, very different reasons. And, uh, you know, it's just it's the sort of thing that you won't ever see. You know, we were talking, I can't remember it was last week or the week before, about uh, the MCU and the fact that you have all these different directors, but all of these films feel very much the same. Mm. And you probably won't get this sort of thing that you got with these four Batman films again, where you just got, like, these wildly different fucking takes on the same character. Um, and again, it's, like, for the better and the worst of it. Um, and, yeah, I don't know what to do myself now. Where, where do I go after this? I have been watching in the latest, uh, the the latest part of my gimmick to just be like, uh, Garrett just plants a seed in my head and then I go away and watch a show. I'm two seasons into Community again now. I'm the influencer. Community is just one of the greatest sitcoms of all time. It's a very, very good show. It's so fucking like, and the thing I, because I haven't done a full rewatch of it in a long time. I did. I did a full rewatch around the time that uh, I was bugging Jack to watch it because I knew he'd love it so much that I ended up rewatching it before he did. Um, 
and I'm so glad that Jack did eventually cave in and watch it because it's it's so special. It's such it's such fun. Every episode is just this like still outrageously funny, still like a big warm hug of a like you know you're like with the exception of that one season when Dan Harmon got fired, uh, you're by and large guaranteed you're gonna sit down for 20 minutes of just an incredible comedy. I had forgotten and I, I think it was the same last time when I rewatched, like how quickly they go from like, because the first episode and, you know, I'll bring you in on this, Garrett. The first episode is like one of the better sitcom pilots ever. Maybe. Yeah, because you watch a lot of shows and like you can see them working out the characters through like the first season. And then it's, it's the classic sitcom and TV show thing in general where it's like, oh, season two is really where it gets, it gets going because they spent the first season working out what they were. Whereas mm. this hits the ground and like all of the characters, with the exception of maybe Troy, Troy's probably the one that changes the most, who goes yeah. from like like uh, dumb jock to like lighthearted goof pretty quickly. I think he's the, the, he's the one that like transforms the most from where he was at the pilot. But for the most part, all of those characters are the same people in that pilot as they are like by the end of that first season and it's remarkable for a show to like hit the ground running knowing who all its characters are that quickly yeah uh, incredible um but because there's such a great grounding and such a thorough understanding of who the characters are like Harmon goes to fucking crazy town so quickly with that show like going with like really weird concepts for episodes so early that like if you like for example if you went to me like what episode do they do the meta bottle episode with Annie's pen I'd be like oh that must be like at least three seasons in it's like the second episode of season two you know <laughs> there there's like loads of stuff like the the abed doing the film about religion where he becomes a messianic figure also very early season two the, and was the chicken fingers episode the first one first where season they went, like, first yeah, season yeah because that, that's went, like when the show like because a lot of the first season is like straightforward where it's a sitcom in a community college and yeah. then from from like the chicken fingers episode onward and, and then obviously yeah. you get paintball shortly after that Aww. then they're like like again like we, we can just be weird and they kind of lost yeah. the because at the start obviously when you're a network comedy you kind of have to yeah. be a network comedy and by the yeah. end of the first season it's like we're not a hit let's just be whatever yeah. the hell we want to be and i also thought the like the progression of dean pelton mm. <laughs> into what he would become in later seasons i thought that took longer nope i think within five episodes they do the thing where like he's on like he's caught on a website looking up furry companions and he's just like, I hope this doesn't awaken anything yes. in me. He's watching a video of a furry. He's like, this better not wait, awaken anything in me. And then like, if you're watching in the background throughout the season, there's like more and more furry Dalmatian accoutrement <laughs> in his office. And he's like drinking out of a Dalmatian mug and, and shit like that. And uh, I think it's late season one, maybe, where they do that episode where... There's an episode going on in the foreground, but Abed is in an entirely different episode in the background. There's like an arc that Abed has. Doesn't he help someone give birth? He helps yeah. someone deliver a baby at the back. And like you can you can watch that whole thing unfold without watching any of the drama. Cause like they do one line where he pops up on camera at the end. He's like, I guess, you know, I've been busy this week. Basically. And I know I'm only a few episodes away from the start of the Cougar Town thing. Um and yeah, it's just like, it is, it's so good. Everybody is so good in it. 
Um, By the way, can I point out halfway through the my favourite community thing, halfway through the run of that show, Dean Powell and Jim Rash wins a fucking Oscar. Yeah. (laughs) For for a screenplay for the Descendants, and then just goes back to being Dean Pelton again. And and I gotta say, much as like he is like a phenomenal arsehole of a person, Chevy Chase is so fucking funny in that show. Oh no, he's great because he plays himself. Yeah, yeah. Dan Harmon just wrote, "What would Chevy Chase do in this situation?" An asshole. Yeah. Like, he's, like even just there's that bit where um so they have an episode where uh like Abed uh Troy Abed Chang and um oh, and a couple of others are like doing a like where they gather around watch bad movies kick puncher and take the piss out of it and uh like <laughs> Pierce refuses to admit that he's not funny so he hires a team of student writers from the, from Greendale <laughs> yeah. and like he's just there's just like him just fucking berating them and then like one of them uh, does like this horrible like just root one gay joke and he starts laughing he's like he likes homophobic jokes just keep writing those <laughs> <laughs> it's like he's so transparently an asshole and I think it's one of those things where it wouldn't work because of like how horrible all his quote unquote gags are in the show. If he was in any way likable as a character, it wouldn't work. But because he's like such a dick, it's so yep. funny how unfunny and horrible he is. You know, like they, yep. they always do the thing, like where um somebody there's a like in a cold open, there's a bit where it's like, oh, that's the most racist thing I've ever heard. And Jeff is like, Pierce will beat that in one minute and starts the <laughs> clock and it takes like forty seconds when he just goes, He didn't realise that Troy and Shirley weren't cousins. <laughs> I, I do wonder if Chevy had stuck around for the six seasons, like would that character have just run out of steam or would they have actually had to attempt to give him a face turn basically by the end no. of that show? Now, it, I, it, but if he'd stuck around that long, him or Dan Harmon would be deceased now yeah, because yeah, one yeah, of them yeah, would yeah, have murdered this, the yes. other one. But this, the other thing is like, you know, not only the blow up with him and Dan Harmon, but I've listened to like interviews with some of the cast since like talking about him and Joel McHale talks about him a lot because yeah, they, I, still, I some of those as well. they still talk a bit and he played Chevy in a film. Uh, as well and he rang Chevy about it and you know they were talking and stuff and he was like just the way that dude is and the Hollywood he grew up in he just does not have the mentality nor the capacity for a a television sitcom and the way it's filmed and the long arduous hours that it takes to make those things like he's used Especially to showing for up community in particular yeah, 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 like particularly Arias and like Dan Harmon, very much known for his like hasty rewrites and, and things like that, you know, adding things uh, right up until the last minute. So like, I don't think that was, an, I don't think there's any version of reality where he was going to stick around, even if him and Dan Harmon were bezzy mates, uh, which they absolutely were not. Um, But yeah, it's like, it's genuinely one of the, like the, the best television sitcoms and it is pretty much uniformly up and down just pitch perfect casting like yeah the the one that i thought like when i started watching it the first time around and like got a couple of episodes in the one that i thought like based on where he was in terms of popularity at the time that i thought oh, this is kind of like stunt casting was ken jong and like within a couple no. of episodes la tigre is just <laughs> He's, no, Ken Jong show is, is just he's it, it oh. didn't like he is indispensable like he is perfect when he starts living in the vents and stuff like that, yeah. like, it when he starts Chang. doing Chang puns. 
Yeah. The thing is, the thing is, him for a little spare Chang. <laughs> him or he, that character, whatever, did run out of steam, but it wasn't on Community. It was in the Hangover. Yeah. Because are we, are we, for some reason, Maria put on Hangover three recently, and I've never seen it before. And that, that's a piece of shit film. Let me tell I, you. I saw. I went with a group of people, uh, and uh, <laughs> it's fun, it's funny. I tell it this way. I went with um, a group of my friends and my girlfriend at the time to go see the Hangover Part Two. And we broke up later that night. And that was only the second worst thing that happened to me that evening. <laughs> but oh, man. I mean, we're not going to top that as an ending yeah. comment. That, that movie's oh, it's so bad. But uh, yeah, okay. Now right, it's time. Creed 3. Come Let's on. Let's move on. Jack, lead the discussion. Creed 3 came out last week. What did we think of it? I mean, this is just a glorious piece of art right here. I, I, I was seriously concerned, I think, when I I first heard that they were doing these movies. And I'm not sure why, but I was just worried that it was going to be like a one-off gimmick kind of thing and then not really have any staying power. Um, and then I saw the first Creed movie and I was like, I want 10 more of these immediately, right? Uh, and Creed 2 was, was very good as well. And I, I thought it was good, but it maybe I was like, mm, is it as good as the first one? Maybe not. Is it going to be diminishing returns from here? And I have to say, and this may be a controversial statement, but Creed 3 is my favourite of the Creed movies. You know, I think it's the best because it has the most believable villain of any of the movies. Like, I get the Drago parallels in, in Creed 2 and, like, his reasons for kind of picking out why he would want to fight the son of, like, the man who kind of, you know, killed his adoptive father and stuff. Like, I get that. But my word, Jonathan Majors in this movie, like, you know, oh, this guy's been in prison for 18 years and he comes out. Now, now if you hear that about the average actor in a movie, you kind of have to always read that commentary in and you have to go oh remember this guy's in prison for 18 years every inch of his body language and his controlled rage and his stuttering and his demeanor his eyes his gaze fucking jonathan majors just looking at me through the screen in this movie i was trembling trembling in fear at this giant giant man who had been wronged by society and had spent 18 years incarcerated only for him to come out with the sole desire to hurt people and hurt them enough to the point where he becomes world heavyweight champion like fuck like it's such a believable thing and then he comes out you know like that first time you see him appear out of the curtain and he's just jacked to fucking high hell and you've got Nipsey Hussle blasting in the background he's been grinding all his life and I was like oh my fucking god I'm in love with this movie right now and that was halfway through the movie yeah. <laughs> and I, yeah it's just it's, it's a pitch perfect sports movie it's a pitch perfect if you want to position a movie with like a good guy and a bad guy and the thing that I thought was the most cool about it was it was exactly the point that we saw in Black Panther where Michael B. Jordan's on the complete flip side in that he's a he's a dickhead. Like, you, you don't really buy into, you know, what he's trying to do, but you fully sympathise and understand why he is the way he is. Mm. And that's Jonathan Majors in this movie. You know, you don't have to like him, but 
by God, do you understand him? And, and is he completely legitimate in all of his actions? I, I think my thing that blew me away about that, that the character of Dame is that... Um, I think in most films where, like, if you come into the third entry in the franchise and they try to retcon in a character that was a key part of the protagonist's backstory, it's like, yeah. I'm, I'm not having it. I, like, I feel like this is just, you couldn't figure out a way to get him in, so you're trying to be like, the he was there all along. To make a community comparison, they parody this very well in the Jack Black episode. Of course, Where they yeah. have Buddy, who was like, they then intersplice into stuff from season one, where like he was in the background while all this crazy shit was happening before, and you just didn't see him. Um, so I feel like that would feel forced and tenuous in a lot of other movies. But I think Jonathan Majors adds such a, a weight to, like, every, like, he added a weight to fucking Kang, which is like, you know, silly comic book character. Um, but he adds a tremendous weight and, and history to this character and his relationship with um, Adonis. And um, I just think he is, I like, I, I'm cribbing a little bit from um, what Kermode said about him, but I just think he's one of the most interesting breakout screen presences I've seen in a long time. Um, I really want to now go back and watch that one season of Lovecraft Country um, because this this that was his big kind of breakthrough um, is on that show that uh, a lot of people are really mad got cancelled. Um, but yeah, he is just like, I will watch him read the fucking phone book. He is so fucking good. Uh, Garrett, what, what did you think of Creed 3? The thing that stood out for me with this movie is that absolutely everything, everything happens exactly as you'd expect it to. Yeah, mm. every single story beat, every character beat, every moment happens beat for beat how you could call in advance. And it's still just fucking awesome. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Yep. It is the most predictable route one movie you could possibly go see. And it still absolutely rocks. Like when you get to the training montage in this movie, it is, as I said, the most 101 training montage. There is nothing new in it. There is nothing you have never seen in training montages before, but you will want to run through a wall because there's something like one. I think Michael B. Jordan does bring some like interesting things directing it, which we might talk about in a second. Oh, yes. He makes like really interesting choices, and that that's what does like differentiate it because like story wise, it is uh, as predictable as could be. And I, I don't really mean that in a bad way. It's like not not every movie has to be like oh shock every twist and turn. It's like you will you will uh, see this movie coming and you will enjoy it. But like the, as I said, the the, the training montage exactly as you expect, and you just sit there and you're like, yeah, this is just filmmaking. And I think it's a yeah. testament to like the, the, the strength of the genre and that if you do a movie like this well, you really would have to struggle to go bad with it because like, like the tenets of you build up a heel, there's a baby face, baby face overcomes heel. That's that's like the, mm. it's, it's the basics of uh, pro wrestling. It's the basics of sports. Everyone dunked on Raj Geary for saying that this week, but like that's one of the least of his worst tweets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Being like, this film is like pro wrestling. It is. It is like pro wrestling. Well, it's everything that pro wrestling at its best should be, Mm. which is build build up a credible villain for the baby face to overcome. And that's how you make the most money. It even has Todd Grisham and Mauro Ronaldo in it. It couldn't be more professional wrestling. Yeah. God, was that (laughs) a shock question. The one question I wanted to ask um, from what I was reading about in the reviews and stuff is uh, what Michael B. Jordan had been talking about in terms of being influenced by anime yes, uh, in regards to this film. And that, yes. that's what I want to know. What does that look like? What does yeah. that mean? So I, I want to get to that. I suppose let's circle back around to, to you, Gareth, and that idea you were talking about uh, the 
directorial choices that Michael B. Jordan makes. And I was, I was knocked out by like, uh, you Good know, pun intended. Pun yeah. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, I was knocked out by like, his abilities as a first time director like the confidence with some of the the choices he makes in that and there was the interview he did with you know to talk about Carmona Mayo again but the interview he did with Simon Mayo where there are uh, like the messaging alone about the in this franchise and particularly emphasized in this film through the character of Adonis's daughter the idea that like hands are the primary mode of communication in this film. Like, through the communication with the daughter and also through the fighting, there's an interesting, like, um, dichotomy being made there. It's like, these are these things that we reach out and we use to, uh, like, communicate with our loved ones, but there are also these things we use for these horrible, <laughs> violent acts. And Adonis faces his own struggles with that dichotomy with the whole subplot about the daughter fighting in school, I think. Um, there's a lot of heart to this film that he does through his directorial choices there's also we'll get to Mark's point now the anime stuff Gar, which I don't know about you I was like sitting in I had read the interviews like everybody else going in where he's just like this is a very anime influenced movie and you're like okay buddy let's see what you fucking got here because this is a live action movie uh, let's see how anime you can get and a couple of seconds in, you see, like, in the prologue for the film, like, Childhood Adonis's Bedroom, um, and you see some anime posted on the wall, and it's like, if this is all he's fucking talking about, like, that's, <laughs> re- you're really, like, you're bigging up something here that you shouldn't have been. Uh, and then you get to the first fight, which, like, it's not a spoiler, but, like, the film essentially opens the, the actual film part, not just the, the kind of cold open, but the proper film starts off with Adonis's kind of, like, um, rematch with Pretty Ricky Condon from the first movie. And you're watching this fight for all of about 10 seconds. You're like, how is he getting anime shit into this? And then there's a moment where Conlon like lunges forward with like a a straight, uh, a straight right or a straight left. And he is leaving his kidney unprotected. And Michael B. Jordan chooses to yeah, choose good pun uh, chooses to show this by like doing this big exaggerated anime-esque swoop of the camera over the shoulder and down to the kidney like making it very apparent like all you're missing is like the little kind of like effects that would be in an anime around the kidney to draw extra attention to the fact that it's unprotected um, and then later there's like I don't want to spoil the like we know what the main event fight is going to be obviously mm. it's going to be a John Major's character but what did you you think about the ways in which um anime clearly influenced the the film yeah the two for me like for like there's a fight in each act so there, there's a fight that's their fight in the middle of the fight in the end and for like the introductions he does like these shots of the face then cuts the shots of the name on the trunks then like cuts to the gloves and it's like super stylized it's not just put a camera on them as they're standing there as they're being introduced by this dude and then there is the last fight without going to spoilers of what exactly he does but there there's a problem I think well not really a problem but it's a thing all boxing movies have to solve in that if you're going to do a 12 round fight you don't want it to pick 12 rounds because that would be really boring so like the way most movies do that is just a little montage of the rounds going by whereas like the decision Michael B. Jordan went with to to to, like depict time in that final fight was really interesting it, it's such a like it's such a weird thing to say because like he's already so successful so it's not that much of a risk but it's an incredible for a first time filmmaker that's it's an incredibly brave stylistic choice yeah to like he went like he swung for the fences and like 
the the way he chose to depict that segment of the fight could easily easily have come off as hokey and shite mm. it didn't though yeah it felt good like it, it the way that it kind of isolated them two in that situation i thought was perfect another thing as well i thought was in the chavez fight like the feeling of him like shattering his eye socket you know with that elbow and stuff and that crack and crunch Mm. felt very anime to me as well like the injury like Mm. the physical sounds and and hits and the the Mm. blows and everything like the the foley on it just sounded so exaggerated i don't know about you guys but like listening to it and and it just seemed more like everything packed more of a punch Mm. more of an impact there was more kind of sounds of the fights i'm also fascinated by how the way he shot the ring is that there are times in the movie where during these three fights the ring appears like it there's just enough room for these two men to stand in there and punch each other and then there are times where it feels like you know particularly in between the rounds the way they're being shot looking at each other from the corners it's like there are they are leagues away from each other um I know some people have said that the one shot that was a little bit too on the nose for them, there's a bit in between rounds in that main event fight where they kind of like each man looks in the corner and they see their opponent, but then they also see the childhood version of them. I don't know how you felt about that, Jack, but I think that kind of worked for me, to be honest. It worked for me because we'd seen the childhood versions of them earlier in the movie, right? That was the big central theme of no matter kind of where they are in their lives, like they still have this relationship that was forged at that age. And to me, it's kind of like an acknowledgement of everything that had led them up to this point. It was like, these were these two kids who had each other's backs, looked out for each other in the face of just a a despicable, um, like adolescence that they both had to live through. And now here they are opposite sides of the ring, kind of all that, you know, innocence of youth had degraded away. And here they were two grown men, like just having a big tear up, you know, for like the sort of, you know, the the sanctity of their relationship. Mm. Um, And it really did work for me. Is it too on the nose? Like, could you kind of get that feeling from maybe just a look or a glance? Yeah. Possibly. But there's no good way of doing that in a sort of combat situation where the only thing that you're going to see from across the ring is two very determined looking guys who are trying to knock the shit out of each other. So I I thought that moment felt kind of poignant for me, but I could also see why it might not work for other people. Yeah, and I think it goes like the entire film is on the nose. Like there's that scene yeah. where they're looking through the wall at each other. <laughs> like yeah. Like, like it's look, so like on the nose yeah, exactly what and, they're going for at all times. Yeah. And and one of them is lit in like a very traditional like good guy lighting and one is in bad guy lighting. Even you know? like main event, Creed wears black, whereas Jonathan Major or we wears white, Jonathan Majors wears black. It's like yeah. it's not subtle. I I, I was looking post main event like when he's like he's put back on the track jacket. I'm like that fucking white track jacket rocks. Like if they sold <laughs> that, does. I'd actually consider buying it. Um, just on a final point, then Garrett, I, I suppose that um, I, I think without spoiling it, like it wraps up in a way where I feel like it would be a quite satisfying end to the trilogy, but also feels like they could just go ahead and pump out some more of these every every couple of years. Um, do you feel like? you would be you would after this have an appetite for more creed or has this sated you 
I feel like if they were to do another one, you'd probably have to do a time jump and base it on the daughter, right? That feels like they were laying the groundwork for that. That would be like time jump and maybe even like teenage daughter. Mm. You know? Um because like but, yeah. obviously like the 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 point of this film is like Creed is close to retirement at this stage, so I don't think like I, I found that they dragged Rocky out until he was in his like his sixties and his brain was falling apart, so so yeah. they won't have a problem doing they, it with Creed. They literally had to kill him to stop them resist it, like to resist bringing him back. Yeah, so like like it's not that they can't do another film based around Michael B. Jordan's character actually boxing, but I I just I feel like this is the resolution of his story, and he can coach his daughter and do something else different and interesting with that. Mm-hmm. And it can be the daughter of somebody else <laughs> that he she fights, and there you go. Gotta love as well uh, any movie that gets a a good kind of like supporting actor uh, performance from a man Wood Harris Avon Barksdale Um, man should be in more things like of all the people in The Wire uh, it's kind of crazy that like he was such a pivotal character and has popped off way less than most of the other principal cast of that show it's very strange to me he kind of felt like his conscience as well in the movie yeah like you know, he was constantly reminding him, like, you don't owe this guy anything. You know, you don't... That There's no contract for you to do this. And it was like the two sides of, you know, like the guilt of the relationship that was forged at that young age, but the sort of modern realisation of knowing kind of what he was doing was wrong and that he'd moved on in his life and he just could not help but get dragged back into it. Yeah. And, you know, he, he didn't even use, like, he didn't even use him too much to sort of say, like, I, I, I told you so, but, like, there were just a few looks, like a few knowing looks that were thrown out. And I thought it was a very subtle, controlled, but but as you say, like perfect acting performance for exactly what that role needed to be in the movie. Mm. Uh, moving on now to video games, finally. And Mark, you have the floor. Yeah. So uh, I was playing Metroid Prime last week um, and I very much like that game. And pretty much everything that I said last week still stands. I will say the key thing that's now reared its head. Um, I'm some seven or eight hours into this game now. And what this game does a lot of, and it is a Metroidvania, so it shouldn't come as a surprise, is backtracking. And backtracking can be the, the death knell to a Metroidvania if it's not done in a way um, that, is, that is enjoyable or becomes tedious. And early on for like the first sort of two hours or so, the backtracking that's involved in the game doesn't feel too bad because you're in a fairly self-contained area with, I'd say, no more than about 20 to 30 rooms. So getting from one point to another on the map isn't too bad and remembering where you've been and where you need to go next isn't as rough because there's not as many mechanics and systems that you need to keep a, a frame of reference to uh, in regards to like rooms that you've seen that have some sort of gimmick to it where you think, okay, that weapon or that item could be used there and the problem is so when you we we were talking about the map last week and so it's like a a 3d wireframe version of of the world and when you look at the map it shows you you know what the room is and it shows you where the doors are to uh to to come in and out and each of the doors has a color which is coded to the the weapon that you can use to open the door so the white doors reference to, to the ice beam, the purple to the wave beam, blah, blah, blah. Very weird locking system in the Metroid world, by the way. 
Yeah, I know. Right? Like, you, can open, oh, you can only open this door by shooting it with a certain type of missile. Video games, am I right? Mm. Um, now you're talking about, that's how all the doors in my house work. Yeah, man. Are you not shooting projectiles to open your doors? Come on, now. Throw this pen at the door. Hey, if the game only used this system, it would feel limited in some ways because you would miss out on a bunch of mechanics that are, uh, you know, like commonplace when it comes to Metroid at this point. But it would make the kind of critical path of knowing where you need to go and making looking at the map just very easy to navigate because you were just looking, right, I, I have this weapon now, where can I use it? I can look at the map and I can see that door over in this point in the map and that door over that point in the map, I, that's where I need to go next. At that point, the game is fine. Um, can get a bit tedious because you're still not sure about where you need to go sometimes, but whatever. The problem that the game has is when it starts to incorporate uh, upgrades that don't use the doors for, for exploration and navigation. So you've got like the speed boost for your morph ball that lets you uh, basically go up and down half pipes. And there are parts of the world that are set as a half pipe. Um, there's the grappling hook that you get. There's the uh, spider tracking ball. And basically around the world, you'll see like um, a sort of like conveyor belt sort of track that you or Samus can kind of magnetically at attach to and then go along the ceilings or whatever. Those parts of the environment are not in any way uh, represented on the map. So for those things, when you're kind of stuck about where you need to go next, you don't have any frame of reference to work with. You only have what you remember and you've seen in the world. And again, for the first like hour or two of the game, that's not so bad. But the problem is, is when you're about seven or eight hours in, you've got over 100 rooms at this point, and it makes navigation very, very difficult. And so what I was talking about last week in terms of uh, the game telling you after about half an hour, hey, you fucking idiot, you need to go over here. That's happened every single time because because the world just expands and expands and expands. There's no way, like, I don't know if there's a specific timer that, that it uses or if you go into X amount of rooms or if you just, the trail that you follow is so cold compared to where you need to be, which it feels like it is sometimes. It does just go, look, you need to go all the way to the other side of the map. I have no fucking clue why you're over here. And it is that problem that just you've got no way to look at the map and know which rooms I can now. And, you know, in some ways I get it because that would probably be a bit too handholdy. But you could also argue, well, you're still having to actually look at the map and deduce. Right. I need to go here and there. And, you know, that's based on the rooms that you've been in. And, you know, like the game does do it in a way where you have to go into a room for that room to now be represented on the map. So it's like, well, if you've done the work to get there, there's no reason it shouldn't show you, you know, like the half pipe or whatever, but it doesn't do that. And so it, it, it is the, it doesn't kill the game, but certainly in terms of the pacing, um, it does drag the thing out where you just get to the point where you, you can lose an hour. If you are to go around to every single room and the, the other problem that the game has is that as you progress further and you pick up weapons, rooms that you've previously been in, they start to bolt on additional enemies or harder versions of enemies that you've already encountered. So the backtracking, which is tedious to begin with, because you may have gone through, you know, like a, a chamber or a corridor five or six times. Now they've thrown in, you know, three or four uh, enemies that are now like flying around the room and, and blasting projectiles at you. So... 
that that tedium then gets multiplied because it's like you really didn't need to add these four extra fucking enemies in the room like i just want to get through to the other side so it's uh you know like it's one of those things where you can obviously see that if you were playing Metroid Prime for the first time, that that wonder of, you know, playing Super Mario 64 for the first time or whatever, that that transition from 2D to 3D, it does work. The the tone of Metroid is still there. It there there are very few first-person shooter games that feel like what Metroid Prime is, but it has this kind of fundamental issue about how you explore this world and how the game you know, shows you where you've been that I can very and fully understand if someone gets about three, four hours into this game and goes either A, you know, I'm fucking done with this or B goes, I need a, a tutorial at this point or I need a guide at this point because I'm just running around in circles and, you know, there might be just one room off in the corner that you forgot about that the game doesn't give you any kind of semblance of a, of, of a hint uh, to, well, unless again, at some point it just says, boom, go over there, which it, it does get a bit frustrating at a point, and I feel like that's not a Metroid Prime problem, though. I feel like because I've been playing Metroid Fusion this week because it released on Switch, and you, you have the same problems where those are ultimately map games. Like like those games are about filling out and navigating a map first and foremost. So they're only as good as the map. And I feel like when they release Metroid Prime Four, they should have all those indicators where there's like this door is where you can use this weapon, blah blah. But they should also just that map should be adjustable by you. You should be able to drop a bunch of map mark, 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 map markers and stuff down in it to like represent things you've come across but can't access yet. And it just has like, like I was in a room in Metroid Fusion today, and I, I was soft locked. I couldn't escape. So it, it just became the Metroid thing of, well, I guess I'm going to shoot every wall with a missile now. <laughs> and yeah. that it did work eventually. After like four minutes of me shooting all of the walls, it turned out I had to shoot the floor below me once. And then I could go through to a shortcut or well, not even a shortcut. That's the only way I could go. And it's just one of those things where it's like the, the design of those games isn't always intuitive and haven't always been intuitive. I thought Tread was probably the best of them in terms of telegraphing. This is one of those that you have to shoot with a missile. <laughs> because yeah. when I was playing Fusion, it's like, that there's no way I should have known I had to shoot below me. And there's times where you, you do know, but there's times where you don't. And I'm just wandering through this hallway trying to work out where exactly to go. And I think, like as you said, I think that's a Metroid problem. I don't think it's just a, like excuse to the prime that it's just like, I'm not entirely sure where I'm supposed to go or what I'm supposed to do unless I'm moving in a straight line. But at least the 2D map is easier to navigate. It's easier to open that 2D map and be like, all right, there's a room up there I haven't gone to. Let me go check that out. Yeah, and that's the thing as well, because like because there's no fast travel system. Which there should um, be. Which there should be. And there isn't drill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like the, you know, there are certain parts of the map in Prime that you can only get to by going like one way, where there are certain other areas where um there are like uh, elevation uh, sorry, um elevators that you take you from one point to another um to get from, you know, like this biome to that biome and certain areas have multiple ways that you can get there but then there's like the frozen area that you need to go back and forth to like three or four times for different upgrades and there's only like really one way that you can get there so you're having to go back through the the magma caverns which is not a particularly interesting area and becomes more tedious because they add more more enemies in as well yeah as well so it's like what was this game oh two oh three oh four it's oh two oh two sure so yeah like fast travel wasn't like an industry convention in oh two where of like, like if they do release Metroid Prime Four and you can't like quickly travel from one area to the next without having to walk halfway across the map, you'd be like, "Well, what do you do?" And your guys fix it, fix it, yeah. put that in there. Yeah, yeah. 
So yeah, I mean, it's I, I I'm definitely going to finish it. I'm definitely going to get to the end of it because uh, I feel like I'm over that hump now, where I'm I'm upgraded to the point that I can get across the map fairly easily. There's nothing better in that um, game than finding yeah. an energy tank, is there? Like oh, <laughs> relief. Finding anything, finding anything is is great. It is. It's a good feeling. It's like oh, I have more missiles. Yay! But the, I think the thing with with the 3D games, I, I wonder, um, is that you was talking there about you know you just have to start blasting at things until the th- you know, the thing happens that you need to happen. And there's more of a kind of color-coded sort of approach to that with the 2D games, I feel, where, you know, you'll come across a rock in Prime and it's like, well, this looks explodable. And I scan it and it says this, you know, this structure is weak. It could probably be, you know, blown up or whatever. And it's like, well, I've got about seven different weapons here. So I guess I'm just going to run through them all. (laughs) Charge shot, super missile, missile. Oh, missile. There we go. That's the one. And then you'll forget about it. Come back to that same rock an hour later and then go through the same process again. But there you go. Whatever. Uh, the other thing that I uh, I was playing today, I think the demo dropped yesterday, uh, is the Bayonetta Origins Soretsu and the Lost Demon, which was uh, shown in, I want to say, like the last two Nintendo Directs. Game Awards and um, Nintendo Direct. That was it. Game Awards. Yeah. Which is this sort of like... It doesn't look like a Bayonetta game, but apparently it's a Bayonetta game. This kind of like uh, twee indie 3D uh, kind of isometric style looking adventure thing. Um, It's really nice in terms of like the presentation. It does this kind of like watercolor effect where when you're going through the story, it kind of splashes the, the image onto the screen and grows out to show you, you know, whatever the scene is. I just, I'm playing this thing and I'm just trying to figure out why does this exist? Who Who is this for? Because I'm sure there are the, the maniacs out there that are very much into the Bayonetta lore. And, you know, I like Bayonetta, but I'm not playing those games for the, the lore or the story. They're platinum games. You play them for one reason, to, you know, hit things really hard at a frantic pace. And so this is not that. It is by Platinum Games, which is the thing that surprised me the most. I really, really felt like this would have been outsourced to a, a smaller studio or whatever, but it is a Platinum Studios game. And it just, you know, it's 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 an origin story of Sorezza. I don't know who the fuck was asking for this. And the first kind of 20, 25 minutes of this game is her, you know, is about her becoming, training to become a witch and her teacher who's really like frowning upon her and you're going off to the world to collect water to bring it back. And the whole time, I'm just like, what, why, what is this? Why am I doing this? Um, it, it looks really nice, and it has, a, uh, it has a real kind of like Danny Elfman sort of, I'm doing a Tim Burton film soundtrack to it, which is, it fits the tone of, I guess, Bayonetta to some degree. Um, but I just, I can't make heads and tails of what this thing is or why it exists. And is it good? I haven't, I... I don't know. Okay. I don't... It just feels like a a pretty kind of atypical indie uh, isometric... I, I haven't really got into, like, the real kind of meat and potatoes of the game yet. I'm only about half an hour in, and a lot of what the, the, the trailers were showing, I haven't got to that bit yet. But the first half an hour really just doesn't doesn't really kind of give you any sort of indication of what you're getting in for. And I don't know how long the demo is. I, I do need to stick some more time into it but it's just you know if you're coming into this as a bayonetta fan from a mechanical aspect there is nothing here at all um and if you're coming into it as a as a a, a law fiend for bayonetta 
uh, I guess there will be some stuff here. Um, but you know, this is I'll, how our viewers of Mario Party felt. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> what is um, this so, thing, and why does it exist? So I, I will try Best and stick. I will try and stick some more time into it for um, for the next week. But I've downloaded the yeah. demo too, but I haven't gotten to it. It doesn't treat me, and I know the previews were pretty like hotish on it. So yeah. Um, just i i'm hoping that the entire time i play this thing i'm not just going why does this exist because that might ruin the experience um anyway uh mario kart 8 those new tracks they rock right oh it's the beautiful little treat every like three months to get one of these drops of mario kart tracks such a delightful additional moment in this time and maybe more characters did you see the title screen there's a bunch of question marks yeah it's just they're, uh, we were talking before the show about how every time they announce these, there's like three or four Mario Kart Tour tracks, and the reaction is always like, "Oh no, Mario Kart Tour tracks!" And then you play them, it's like, "Oh, that Amsterdam level is actually awesome," <laughs> because all yeah. of the tour tracks I think are, are like a glimpse into what the future of Mario Kart will be. In that, mm-hmm. none of them, none of them are just linear tracks. All of them, yeah. like like the different laps, you go different directions, they close off routes, they open up routes. All of the laps through all of the tour tracks feel completely different, which makes yeah. it, you're not just running around the same circuit three times. And it, it feels much more fresh and exciting every time you go around it a little different. And sometimes there's different directions and there's more shortcuts. It feels like like the, it's just a much more detailed course design than like the traditional Mario Kart. And like some Mario Kart games, like uh, there's Wario's Mountain that goes all downhill through three tracks, the F-Zero track are also like that in the DLC of Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. So there is some that are just uh, three legs rather than three laps. But I do think that just makes them feel like really cool. You just get to the tulip section of Amsterdam. You're like, oh, tulips. Yeah. I swear to God, there's there's like one, I think there's one particular turn on the Paris track on like the third lap. And for some reason, it throws you off. And every single time, I think you're meant to throw like a left and I end up throwing a right again because I think like I'm still on the second lap or something. Mm. And I just careen straight into a, a corner that I can't go through. And it's like, I've done this track enough times. I should know by now. But yeah, it's, I, I've not been the biggest fan of the World Tour tracks. I think just because, um, visually they they look a little bit more simplified and obviously they were mobile games for, uh, mobile games from the mobile game tracks from the mobile game first jesus we'll get there and i think that is like um, true of this dlc in general and that like it is not the level of production of the original mario kart Day tracks that's very clear yeah but but i do like the yoshi island track i i really like you got the big kind of purple monster blob out in the back in the ocean i really like the kind of scale and size they do with that yeah and it has all the like little trappings of yoshi's island with the music and the coin sound effects and like the victory music is from yoshi's island they do all those little details that just make it feel like a yoshi's island track which is really cool yeah yeah these tracks are awesome um i guess it does lead the question like what what characters do you think we will get uh pd piranha has to be there uh diddy kong probably right it's kind of amazing that he's just not showing up at all. There's already like 150 characters in that game, and Diddy Kong's not one of them. <laughs> I know, right? It's like we've got all of the Cooper kids. We've got 12 different versions of Yoshi or Shy Guy yeah. you can pick from. Loads they've of babies. We- like, up until relatively recently, they've been very weird about, like, they have to be Mario Universe characters, which I guess, like, Donkey Kong specifically is, whereas Diddy Kong would have debuted in a Donkey Kong game. Uh, and that was all very much, yes, okay, I understand that's the way Mario Kart is until fucking Link shows up. If like, we can have Link, cycle. we can have Cranky Kong, damn it. Uh, True. <laughs> I do wonder, yeah, I wonder like, will there be any, like, 
you know, broader Nintendo characters or will it just yeah, be? Yeah, yeah. yeah, you see, that's what I definitely Kid don't Icarus. want. I definitely don't want it to turn into like um, Smash because Smash. I does absolutely. Its own... I want it to turn into yeah, Smash. I, I, that is well, what I, I want. don't want this game to, but I do want like the next yeah. Mario Kart should be Nintendo Kart. It should be. I, yeah. I think like branch out, yeah, but like I, I, I don't know how far I want to to go outside of that I don't, like, I you, you I play that they, Yoshi's Island track and it has all the little trappings and nostalgia beats of Yoshi's Island and you just think about god if they just did that for Pokemon or if they did that for all of their franchises if they did it for Kirby like yeah. it would they would be a lot of fun Dave, Dave see, now, just the, imagine the, well, the just imagine we're... driving as Helix flinging your arms around yeah. like, <laughs> arms Look, I, with the I'm arms saying... Steve songs like whoa Oh, you're oh, Helix in your way through the world. Come it's on one now. Of the fucking best songs. It goes so hard and doesn't need to. Uh, no, the reason I'm kind of resisting against it is because I'm like, I know what the actual reality of that would be, and that we'd actually just get 700 Fire Emblem characters. Yeah. In that <laughs> that would be awesome. I know. Yeah, oh, okay, that's, okay. yeah that's appealing to All the right. Garrus. This yeah. is ideal. You've suggested the perfect game Fire Emblem Racing. <laughs> yeah. Can we just God. like take like Fire Emblem and Xenoblade Chronicles and just kind of throw all of that into its own separate cart racer and just put it over there? If there was a Xenoblade racer, that would win Game of the Year. I would die on that hill. <laughs> it wins Soundtrack of the Year again, probably. Every time Schultz goes past somebody, he just shouts, I'm really feeling it. It would be amazing. Uh, I, so I, I, I just could only hope... Um, that it would end up being like Chocobo Racer, <laughs> but like, can I get the uh, can I get the full gamut of Conker's Bad Fur Day characters in, in in this, please? By the way, that's a, like say- you know, in an ideal world, if it expanded out to like rare characters, you've got me back on board. Yeah, like Banjo Kazooie in there. Yeah, like we already, of course, have had them in a racing game, but them in this racing game, I'd be into. Yeah, and also let's. I think Nintendo are done with licensing hell for a while now after getting Goldeneye out. Yeah. Yeah. But them and Microsoft are, are James best Bond friends in now. Mario Kart. There's already a Mercedes in Mario Kart. James Bond is the next extension. Yeah. yeah, I feel like it's easier to get Mercedes than it is to get James Bond. I also forget Mercedes <laughs> is still in that game until I scroll through the menu. It's like, oh, there it is. There's my Mercedes car. You would yeah. think that that was sort of like a limited time deal, but no, no. it's just it's just there. Yeah, so but it's know, also that weird. That's Mario like Kart nine Lewis Hamilton. But, <laughs> but the thing with that is, it's it's weird that that's Lewis Hamilton. <laughs> that's the only licensed thing in there and I don't know if it's like Mercedes just have an exclusive exclusivity deal or whatever but it is kind of weird it's like you just scroll through and like throughout the the, the whole thing it's just like there's the one Mercedes car and that's it <laughs> it's perfect what more do you want Mario yeah. just wants to drive his Mercedes oh they should put the Mario Bros van in it that would be a good movie tie-in oh my god there you go are you telling me you don't want a hybrid between Lewis Hamilton and Toad in a Mercedes in the next game Mark Look me in the eye and tell me you don't want that. Well, I can't look you in the eye because your camera's not on, so... Lewis <laughs> Hamilton. You know what they'll probably do, though, because of, like, the, the licensing uh, nightmare, they'll go, oh, no, sorry, we can't do that. Uh, you'll have to, uh, you'll have to have, like, uh, Valtteri Bottas or something like that from, like, some, somebody else from F1. You can't have Hamilton. You can have someone else, though. Who's the, who's the second driver from Mercedes now? George Russell, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you put yeah. him in. You're not getting Hamilton. Oh. But Hamiltoad, it's a good pun I as know, well. It is. It's good. You pitch it to them. You pitch that to Doug Bowser and see what happens. But one other <laughs> thing past this, though, is like, at what point did they start um, expanding the tracks out and doing licensed tracks? When do we get Silverstone in Mario Kart? That's the question I ask. <laughs> I feel surprised that, like, there hasn't been... The Nürburgring! Something like, a, you know, not necessarily the Nürburgring, but, like, something that is a takeoff of that. They should go you know the know other mean? way around and turn the Nürburgring into Baby Park. 
Yes. Oh, yes. man. Um, okay. Let's move to the news. Uh, first things first. Um, in a story that is being very much styled on Twitter.com as bullying works, uh, Rocksteady's Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League has been delayed once again. Uh, it was coming out imminently, I believe, in the first half of the year. Um, and yeah, 26th of May. And now it has been uh, shifted to an undetermined point this year. Um, this was after we saw more footage of it and saw that it was very much going down the games as a live service route. And people were not happy, so unhappy to the point where in a very rare backtrack, uh, they seem to be just tried to get rid of this shit from the game. Um, I'm kind of like... I don't know. Uh, I'll go to Garrett first. Like, I, I feel like I'm just so expectant of these big developers, these big publishers to just like, they don't back Dune, they double Dune. So I was kind of like really shocked that they went, you know what? Maybe we'll actually listen. I, I would be dubious about the extent to which they could overhaul. The, like this game has been in development yeah. for like seven years at this stage. It- doesn't it seem like it seems like a fundamental thing to try and shift? You can't take the lives. It was built as a live service game. It's still going to yeah. be a live service game. Then the question is, like, is it going to be a fun live service game? Uh, I do mm. wonder is like, like maybe the, the turning off of Avengers has kind of spooked them a little bit more as well, because like if Avengers couldn't do it, these guys can't. And maybe they'll make a better yeah. game than Avengers. And but like I was going to say Rockstar is a better studio. But Avengers was Crystal Dynamics. It was a good studio yeah. that made games yeah. people liked. It's like a single player games people like to know less it is like the exact same situation that's happening here but they're not going to suddenly turn this into an arkham game they can't so not, the question yeah. is well what can they do in say six well not even six extra months is say if they release it in november instead of may mm. i guess an extra actually no that is six months never mind matt's six extra months <laughs> um, so what can they do in six extra months to make this a little bit more fun a little more a little bit more playable but it's it's uh, the thing i'm always like most skeptical about is when they say oh this game is just as enjoyable single player as it is multiplayer and i refuse to believe that's true of nearly any game so you either make a game yeah. that's built for multiplayer or you make a game that's built for single player player I, I feel like if you're trying to split the difference you're not serving either side particularly well so if, if the, like the next six months is them trying to split that difference even more it might make for a worse game not a better one yeah it would be quite embarrassing if they have to climb down try and change it as much as possible and it comes out and it's still dog shit <laughs> well isn't that like part of what happened with gotham knights where people had the same concerns that it was a live service game and it wasn't they're like no it's not we swear and then it just turns out it's just a bland action game yeah, yeah. I, I feel like the the tepid reaction to Gotham Knights as a whole might play a part in in the decision that's been made here as well, um, because they, you know I'm I'm sure that like Rocksteady just don't want to have that on their hands here. But it is that case is like look six months. It seems like it's a long time, but it's really not. And as you mentioned, this game has been in development forever. It's like what can you do in that time? Either you're going to use those six months to try out a few things that maybe they they kind of work but then you need to spend like another year implementing them or you just you just have to put the thing out the fucking door at some point and just you know see what happens come come whatever but uh it's not promising uh i'll say that much and um 
I, you know, with this kind of thing, I just, I feel sorry for the people that are in there, you know, every day. Who are probably yeah, sick to death of this game. Oh, uh, I they, can't they know imagine. They are just like, yeah, we didn't want it to be this kind of game either. Yeah, because they've been yeah. like sitting on that fence the whole time since they announced it because they know new Rocksteady game people want a new Arkham. This isn't a new Arkham, it's a multiplayer game. But instead of coming out and saying, look, we're making a multiplayer game, we get that's not what you want, but it's going to be the best multiplayer game you've ever had. They're, again, trying to sit in that fence and be like, well, it's a single player game too. It's like, it, it, I think that ultimately just leads to a, a bland game that doesn't have an identity. We're going it's to gonna please be, you all. Yeah. It's going to be wild if the best superhero game that's come out in like the last two years is that Midnight Suns, which I still haven't got to yet, but I do want to give it slaps. Crack. It's good. Yeah. It's good. It, that, that is just uh, an XCOM-fused superhero game being yeah. the best thing. By the is, XCOM people. Uh, but like that, yeah, the, the well, thing is, that, yeah. that that's the perfect like uh, marriage, though. You just give a license and say, make the game you make, but Marvel. And that's what they yeah. did. Instead I mean, of being that's, like, that's hey, Rockstead, you make these great single-player games. Let's not do that. Yeah. Let's chase games to service. That That's hopefully what's happening with James Bond and IO. Mm. You know? Um, that's where you bring Jack God, in. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> God, I hope so. But there's so many moments in Hitman 3 where I just feel like, oh, these guys are just brushing up for a, for a bit of a James Bond till The last mission so. in particular is like, oh, that's a, just, just a James Bond mission. You, yeah. you just made a James 100%. Bond level. Yeah. One of the, the superhero films, uh, superhero games, sorry, are on the horizon. Is there a Wolverine one? That's probably not this yeah. year. Or is it this year? It's, no, it's Spider-Man 2 is this year. Yeah, and Wolverine is still coming. Okay. And then Wolverine I mean, is next. I don't, I don't count Spider-Man 2. That's that's going to be fine. We, we don't need to worry about that, you know? Yeah. Until suddenly all the skins you get by grinding missions. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. can't get a Spider-Man suit yeah. just by picking it. Don't, don't jinx the thing, Mark. I mean, if you say grinding in terms of like a Tony Hawk's mechanic, then thumbs up. Let's do it. Let's go. If Spider-Man had a skateboard in this game, that would actually be cool. That would Spider be awesome. Hawk. I'll play that. Um, who is up next? We've got Garrus. Uh, in the typical Square Enix story, they're they're sad about the forespoken sales. They're lackluster, and okay. admits many games underperformed, putting growth at risk. <laughs> way way to join the rest of the world in being sad about forespoken. Yeah, yeah, that game came out to no fanfare and disappeared up its own ass very quickly. Like the thing I've said, that's really weird. Like this is the Final Fantasy fifteen team. That's the people who made this game. It's not the Crystal Dynamics. It's not the Western studio that they eventually offload that they never wanted in the first place. This is the team that made their marquee franchise the last time. And mm. it, it bombed. Nobody wanted it. it. I think it's the kind of game that will pick up like a cult following in five years where there'll be a bunch of people who are like, you know, Forspoken's actually pretty good when you get past yeah. X, Y, and Z. When it hits that like 20, 25 quid in a sale. Yeah, because it seems like a 6 out of 10 game bordering on a 7. And that's like the classic, the people that like it will find the things to like and then champion years down the line as opposed to it being mm. forgotten. But And everyone else is not going to pay 60 to 70 quid for that. <laughs> yeah, no one's actually going to find out because it'll just be those Forspoken so, for sickos who are like, you know, Forspoken's actually a pretty good game. But Square Enix like... Garrett Kidney, I predict your future <laughs> is going to be that. <laughs> like Square Enix are in a weird place where it's like, obviously they still have Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest, which will still sell gangbusters every single time but then like a lot of the the other stuff they've tried and they've released a lot of games like they put out games like every 
like two a month at this stage like I didn't realise how many fucking things have come over like the last year mm. or two yeah when you it's crazy like there's like four different strategy games that you can't remember like the full of, like the, this Eurogamer article has the full list of games I'm going to read them all Babylon's Fall Stranger of Paradise Final Fantasy Origin the Chrono Cross remake the Centennial Case of Shijima Story no one's heard of that 2022 Game of the Year Live Alive Various Day Life Voice of Cards The Diofield Chronicle Valkyrie Elysium Valkyrie Profile Star Ocean Tactics Ogre Crisis Core Forspoken Theater The Octopath Traveler and Paranorma Sight The Seven Mysteries of Hanjo this Tell you what No one makes it in their title like Square Enix is, is the bit that you made up four of them uh, No they're all real They're all Various Day Life is in fact a real game David Garrett, Garrett, can Tactics Ogre? Can we just can we just rewind? Or is Tactics the end of one game and Ogre the start of the other? No, Tactics Ogre is apparently like one of the best games on that list. It's a it's a very the, beloved game the, that was the, remade. The thing, the thing about yeah. the gameplay in Tactics Ogre is it has layers. Mm. Much like uh, Tactics onion. Ogre, that's a uh, uh, Final Fantasy Tactics like s. No, game. It, it's actually it's actually the subtitle for Shrek Four. <laughs> <laughs> Shrek Four Tactics that's, Ogre. That's the XCOM Shrek game. It's actually yeah. the post credit yeah. scene of Puss in Boots. Shrek'scom. There you go. Oh, there we are. But like a bunch of those games are good. 2022 Game of the Year Live Alive, Octopath Traveler is good. And like I think Stranger of Paradise Final Fantasy Origin has that scene where your man walks away and a Linkin Park song plays. That's a good game. <laughs> but is it crawling? But a lot of those haven't been like financial successes. Like they released stuff like Harvestella and stuff like the Diafell Chronicle and Valkyrie Elysium, these games that I think we're modestly well-reviewed. Again, a bunch of 7 out of 10s that just didn't find an audience. And that doesn't include stuff like Chocobo GP. But then they have Final Fantasy 16 coming out this year, so they'll probably be fine. And they have Dragon Quest, which they can cash in in Japan until the end of time. So they'll be fine. But it's it's I a mean, weird the, time the for very Square. Obvious, the very obvious issue here is they just released too many fucking games. But I like that and, of like, them. none of them had any marketing. They're so weird in that they'll just drop Theatre them and, and Octopath Traveler within two weeks of each other. And you're like... Pfft, cool i like both those games i'll play them but i feel like you could have put a little more oomph into both of them i i feel like square enix's strategy is just releasing as many games as possible knowing that garrett kidney is going to buy all of them and that's going to hold them all right for the how many year. of these games did i buy one two three <laughs> four uh, five tactics ogre i, I did buy tactical over five crisis core six seven eight i bought i've only bought eight of these games mark Wait, thank you that's okay, not but, that's but, not that's but. not a bit you did buy tactics ogre. i did buy tactics ogre. people love that game that's not like <laughs> that's, a niche deep cut that's not diafell chronicle people fucking love tactics ogre it's like one also, of the best you, games you of all time to, to people I would you also need to include to how much Jack's money you put right into Theatre Rhythm as well, right? I, I did give them like 110 so euro for Theatre Rhythm. That's, that's well, There true. you go, that's their first quarter covered. I'm, I'm keeping Square Enix alive single-handedly. I'm going to buy their blockchain game if they just put, like, cloud in it. Hey, hey Garrett. Tactics, okay? Yeah, people love that game. <laughs> I'm gonna play. I'm gonna play that game for the next episode and then champion Tactics Ogre. It's all we're gonna talk about. I'm gonna make that this year's Live Alive. Yeah, it's basically Shrek's com. <laughs> but yeah, they're they're sad about their sales. People didn't buy Forspoken. Yeah. Why do I it get a feeling I know what the title of this episode this week is going to be? It can't be a great like galloping shock in in terms of the sales. Like I think like 
as soon as I was hearing about that game, it wasn't, hey, Forspoken's out. It's a, hey, Forspoken's not good. It's got like I mean, a the, substantial marketing push though. Like this isn't one yeah. of the, this isn't romancing saga. <laughs> like it's not just thrown out to die. Like this has been it in did, multiples, but- pro- like a lot of PlayStation presentations, a lot of Square Enix ones. This got a real strong push. It did, but then it came out and most of the discourse around it was just annoying dialogue. The annoying dialogue, and I, there wasn't really much about the game being said, which I don't know, I'd consider that to be a problem. Apparently, the movement was fun. For Mitsu liked it at least. Yeah, I think you're going to get, I think you're onto something there, Garrett. I think, like, as soon as this comes down to the right price point and enough time has passed that people have kind of forgotten the bad torrent of shit reviews that came with it, people will take a punt on it on offer and be like, do you know what? It's all right. Yeah. Um, it could be, I'll tell you what, you would have a very good cause to bring that up for Ham Sandwich if you wanted to make a Ham Sandwich campaign for that. It seems like a humdinger yeah, of a one. It's, it's probably in there. If any of us bother to even Tactics touch Ogre. it. Yeah. Tactics Ogre was a 2022 yeah. game, Jack. Come on. God, how do you not know? Especially when you're on a podcast with the world's foremost tactics ogre experts. Man who has bought the game but never played it. Yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, Garrett, you have to play that for next week now. There's no two ways about okay. it. Okay. I want you to become an ogre who is obsessed with nothing but tactics. Somebody once told me. <laughs> I did see I saw Plus in Boots 2 this week. That movie rules. That movie fucking rocks. The action yes. in that movie is like legitimately sensational. Like it's exhilarating. That movie is so good. I'm not. I'm not gonna like Garrett. I kind of have a, 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 a sort of like nervous twitch now. Whenever I big something up that you haven't seen or played yet, I do worry that you're gonna come on the week after or some point after and just be like, "No, shit, Mark, tearing yeah. down puss and boots." Yeah, but I like it when he does that. <laughs> Unless it's something you, you love, yeah, Jack. You, you live for the chaos. No, but I like it when he does it to stuff I like as well. Uh, Jack just wants the argumentative content. But yeah, Puss and yeah, Boots. Go see Puss and Boots. That movie rocks. I just like Garrett. Um, I, Mark, it's been a good while since you or I have had the chance to thunder the word war groove out loud <sighs> in this podcast, but hit me what up. What a word. What a powerful word. Yeah, so Chucklefish uh, have announced that the Advanced Wars inspired turn-based strategy game Wargroove is getting a war sequel. Groove. And it's coming to PC and Switch at some currently unspecified future time. Uh, the original Wargroove was released back in 2019. Uh, I was giving Starved Advance Wars. At this point, we didn't have the announcement that the Advance Wars remake was coming. Um, and featured a few new tactical twists, such as Unisynergies with a splash of fire emblem fantasy thrown in. Uh, a free and sizable co-op-focused expansion launched in 2020. And now, a little over three years later, Chucklefish... As revealed, a follow-up is on the way. Uh, this has been developed by Robitality, the studio behind decently enjoyable turn-based strategy titles Pathway, which I quite enjoyed, and Halfway. Wait, are they two separate games? I don't know. On behalf of Shockerfish, uh, and promises an entirely new and uh, a pirate a pirate adventure spanning three interwoven campaign arcs. So I feel like the, the pirate kind of themed element of this, I think that's pretty cool. That's, yeah. a, that's, a, that's a solid approach to take for this. Yeah. I didn't actually stick with Wargroove past, I'd say, like a couple of hours, but then I'm kind of like that with Advance Wars as well. Every time I play Advance Wars, I play for a few hours and I'm like, I've got my feel of this and I'm on to the yeah, next yeah. thing now. I have a great time, but I hit my satisfied level with it within a few hours. Like, I'm not getting deep in the weeds on, on, on Wargroove or Advance Wars. 
Yeah, Wargrove yeah. was like too so, slow for me. It was like the maps were 30, 40 minutes long, and that's that's just too they long. Were. Uh, that's like that's at least two Garrett cycles. <laughs> yeah. I could I could finish two whole games in that time. Yeah, you can have as many good dogs in that game as you want, but yeah, the the pacing was a little bit. There's an incredibly good dog in that game. I, I do yeah. wonder how it fares in like the year where there is an actual Advance Wars. Like the Advance Wars is out next month. It is the remake of the first yeah. two, but it's it's a new Advance. Well, again, it, it's an Advance Wars product that is new that is being released yes. in the same year, and again, a different developer is a an, an, an interesting wrinkle as well. Yeah, mm. I, I would say. I mean, considering it doesn't have a specified date, uh, I would say they probably want to put as much time between Advance Wars and Wargroove Two. So I'd yeah. say six months minimum. But I, I like, would wonder, for, like, given the given that Advance Wars game was meant to come out last year, do you think they've been working on another for a year now? Like they just shoved that in in, in the oven, wait for it to release, and they they probably surely been working on it. like the the whole idea of remaking Advance Wars is then to be like you know reintroduce the advance wars ip so maybe they just threw the yeah. team on they're making another advance wars right now yeah i i think they are yeah i i would strongly suspect that that, that is the case i think maybe the 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 remaking of the old ones might be one of those let's test the waters because it seemed like the real-time strategy game was making a comeback mm. let's re-release the old ones to mitigate risk think, and see if there's still appetite do you think they would transition it to 3D? Oh, no, they shouldn't. I don't know. They sh- Yeah, they shouldn't. They should just, like, make some really nice, ana- like, um, like modern, crisp and sharp uh, 2D animations uh, and just, like, you know, stay in their lane. Stay in their lane. Um, let's finish up with Jack. Cool. So Sony and Microsoft are a pair of messy bitches. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's just the end of the news story. Good night, everybody. <laughs> okay, so uh, Sony suggested a number of ways that Microsoft could hinder Call of Duty on PlayStation should regulators approve Microsoft's proposed 69 billion takeover of Activision Blizzard, which I'm convinced is just because it's a hilarious nice. number, uh, including purposefully releasing a version with bugs and errors. Yes, because no games released without those in 2023. A new document from the 22nd of February has been released containing Sony's observations on remedies from the UK's competition and markets authorities. One section in particular is focused on the different mechanisms available to Microsoft to avoid its obligations concerning the Call of Duty franchise. In short, this is Sony's view on how Microsoft could withhold access to existing or future Call of Duty games to impair PlayStation's competitiveness. The strategies Sony suggests include raising the price of Call of Duty on PlayStation, degrading the quality and performance of the game on PlayStation compared to Xbox, degrading the game to ignore PlayStation-specific features, restricting, degrading or not prioritizing investment in COD multiplayer on PlayStation and making the game available on a subscription service only on Game Pass. They would never. So, what? Yeah, I. So, Microsoft hit back and um, they said since the CMA issued its provisional findings, we have offered solutions which address its concerns and increase the deal's benefit to UK players and game developers. These include a guarantee of parity between Xbox and PlayStation on access to Call of Duty and legally binding commitments yeah. to ensure that Call of Duty is available to at least 150 million more players yeah. on other consoles right. and cloud streaming platforms. Like- the decision now lies with the CMA on whether it will block this deal and protect Sony... 
the dominant market leader, there's the messy bitch part, or consider solutions that make more games available to more players. So they kind of denied it in that statement, yeah. but then they had to get that little jab in at Sony they, on like, the way there. I, I love the idea that like in Sony's mind that there, there would be somebody who in their right mind would volunteer to make less money. <laughs> You yeah. know, by putting it on Game Pass uh, and keeping it away from PlayStation. But, like, the thing about the sabotage is great. There was a great point. I can't remember if it was Schreier or who it was made the point. is like, somebody that's being this paranoid and this specific about people shipping, their, like, a different platforms version with bugs. The only people that have that specific a thought might be people that have done that themselves <laughs> before. That they know the playbook. They're reading out their own one. Yeah, like, um, this whole thing where it's, like, Microsoft are like, oh, whittle old Microsoft. Software, just a tiny company trying to get by. And Sony are like, we will go bankrupt without Call of Duty. We are just impossible to exist without that one video game. And it's just these two arguments where it's just like, one, Microsoft, you're a big company, like one of the biggest companies in the world. Sony, you'll be fine. You had exclusivity on Call of Duty stuff. How come that wasn't anti-competitive then? Oh, but but we didn't own it. We just had exclusivity on it. Also, did it really give that like having the exclusivity or the timed exclusivity mm. on some of that college? Was that really the thing that put them ahead in the console wars? No, it wasn't. It was the diabolical Xbox One strategy that gave them the the head start. Like it's it, I, I think platform holders really overstate the 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 benefit of this in a war with the like the other consoles um it's it's kind of like when apple and epic will find it out it's like oh i'm sure these two giant corporations will find a nice way to make money with each other at some point the the funny part is like microsoft having to shop around it's like we'll put it on nintendo we'll put it on nvidia we're putting call of duty everywhere we're gonna put it on your n gauges yeah Ultimately, like, the only, like, the, well, the, not the only, but the main decisive factor in, like, people moving from one primary console to another across generations is what are my friends doing? Mm. You know what I mean? Like, more so than, like, am I getting, oh, is my character going to get a hat <laughs> if, I, if, if I go to this console? And he, not even get a hat, but more like get timed exclusive access to this hat. Dave, um, Dave, what kind of hat? Well, Valerie Stacey has a new hat. And I don't want to spoil the surprise, my friend. Um, I see. But yeah, I like, I don't, I, I think this is like, yeah, I, uh, this is just some silly, messy bitches of platform, <laughs> platform holders being such. But isn't it funny? Um, how, like Activision Blizzard is a humongous company. Yes. And this enormous. entire dispute has like boiled down to Call of Duty. <laughs> Like, yeah. never mind all of Blizzard or all of King, which nobody even mentions. People forget King exists and it probably makes money yeah. than all of these things combined. Yeah. And like th- this wasn't they kicked up now. Sony did kick up a stink when it happened with uh, Mojang. Because hmm. I remember them saying that they were afraid about losing, uh, you know, Minecraft stuff and that Minecraft 2 would then be an ex- uh, Xbox exclusive. And, and then that's ultimately like, like that. Minecraft's or Microsoft's best defense. It's like, well, we left it for everybody. We put it again. We put it on more yeah. platforms. Yeah. Uh, but like, they, I, I find it weird that they weren't nearly this whingy about Bethesda. Mm. They're not this whingy about Double Fine. Like, it's it, it's just, for some reason, they're hyperfixating not just on, as you said, Garrett, not just on one studio, but one game by this enormous studio. Mm. I mean, look, Call of Duty still makes... You oh, know, it makes it's, still, it's, it's the biggest game in yeah, the world. It's, it is. It, you know, it's in the top ten every year without fail. Um, 
so there's there's a reason G- for it. GTA Five, <laughs> that and Mario Kart Eight. You know, yeah. um, there's an obvious reason for it. But exactly. I just what what is the the are, are they worried here that they think that someone's going to play the Sony version and hypothetically get an inferior version of Call of Duty and then decide, well, fuck this, I'm going to go get an Xbox instead. Is, is, that, yeah. is that what this mentality comes down to? I don't, like, I don't think they're, they're worried they're about any of that. I don't think a single thing they say in any of these filings is a thing they're actually worried about. They just don't want Microsoft to have it. <laughs> they're coming up with every yeah. and any argument they can muster they, in order to stop Microsoft from they, having it, but they're yeah, not actually they concerned wa- that it will kill their business. Yeah, They don't want them to have it, and they want it to be very uncomfortable and annoying for them to have it. Mm. Um, They'll have to make a shitty like down res version for Switch every year now. They've made that commitment for 10 years. It's just a very expensive tantrum. It is. Here it is. Yeah. Um, I just, well, the thing I love about this is the fact that you've got this going on over here and Nintendo are just off in the corner and, you know, they'll probably announce like Labo 2 next month or something. This is just so off in their own yeah, world yeah. and like and sony was there, there was like be. that sony quote that we're like we'll be like nintendo if we don't have call of duty and there's like a wildly <laughs> successful company yeah yeah a beloved company yeah. by everyone because nintendo they're doing all right the company I mean, should be like the fourth best-selling console of all time right now maybe you should fairness, be nintendo in as much as nintendo do not give a shit what anyone else is mm, doing they'll just release fairness, Platoon and sorry. have their own shooter and it will be better. Yeah. So Sony, Sony kind of are like Nintendo because they've released uh, a peripheral for their console that you know no one's going to fucking ever use, or maybe the once. Has uh, anyone so, heard a word know. about PSVR two? <laughs> like, no. Does a single yeah. person actually has anyone bought it ever? I, I know, I know one person that has one. It's like people are finding it hard enough to still to get the fucking console, mm, let alone pay the that. price of the console again for this thing. That like again, I think the like among the critical errors they made with this thing, like the price point is definitely one, but also like the not being backwards compatible to PSVR one is such horseshit. Like <laughs> also like, being like Nintendo, it was also such a niche of a niche that like it at least it would go some way towards people rationalizing a purchase if it was like well my library of psvr games come over with me um, and you might even be able to do that oh it's better hardware so they'll perform better a little pitch there yeah yeah but no no that's not what they did no um, you can play a horizon tech demo yeah Ooh. um okay on that note, folks, the, that's the end of Link to the Cast for this week. Thank you very much for tuning in once again um, at Link to the Cast, where you need to follow us on Twitter to find where to subscribe, to find the show notes as they're posted, and um, to just talk with us about uh, what we've been covering, what you'd like us to cover, what you think of uh, what we've been saying on the show, etc. Individually, I'm at the day to day. Mark is at Lithium Project. Jack is at Jack Lazell, and Garrett is at Garrett Kidney. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you again next week. Tactics Ogre.